On today's pod, we have Sarah Kovacs. For many of the undergraduate students in the audience, Sarah won't be a familiar face, but to the graduate students, she makes an impact every day. Sarah is charming and direct, and if you are looking for an insightful opinion, she is super well-read and always willing to share her opinions candidly. An artist at heart, she is now committed to better appreciating science and facilitating the careers of graduate students in the molecular science program. So please lean in and enjoy my conversation with Sarah Kovacs. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today, we have Sarah Kovacs with us, and Sarah is one of my favorite staff people at Ryerson. Not only does she make me laugh all the time, but she's always outspoken and willing to share her thoughts on many things of relevance when we're, when we're chatting in the hall or, or over a glass of beer. So Sarah, welcome to the pod. Hi, thank you for having me. And we're glad that you could spend some time with us today. Sarah, tell us about your role at Ryerson. Well, I'm the graduate program administrator for molecular science, which is in the chemistry and biology department. I consider that my role is to direct faculty and students around the policies and various hurdles in order to facilitate the student success in the program. And I like to think of you as a shield that protects us from the bureaucratic engine, but really a shield also just takes a huge beating in terms of what they do on a daily basis. Yeah, <laughs> um, I also, I refer to administrators as the grease in the wheels too, because we make the thing work, even, even if there's like huge obstructions. Yeah, I like that. Find you a way to the, slide around that. You, yeah, you lower the friction of all of these situations, which is, which is good because friction builds heat and people then explode. So let's talk about you, first of all, before we get into kind of your role, deeper role, uh, evaluation of your role at Ryerson. Sarah, where were you born? Where's I hometown? was born in Hamilton, Ontario, where I currently live again. <laughs> like a salmon, you came full circle. I so, home. You know what? I came here due to real estate, uh, not nostalgia or any kind of like real roots. It was the closest place to Toronto that had a proper downtown and affordable housing at the time that I was going to buy a home. So here I am. I'm Hamilton's glad to have you. So tell us about your where, where you went to school. Like, so actually, before you tell us what you were in school, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Do you remember? Um, I Yeah, it's weird. I don't remember what I wanted to be as a kid, but I remember people telling me I would make a good lawyer or politician from a pretty young age because I was pretty argumentative. And as a child, I was adorably precocious and adults loved that. And they thought I was like full of charisma and I would uh, succeed in some sort of like public office. Uh, (laughs) The sheen of that faded as puberty set in. And um, yeah, I started to get a little more incredulous and resentful and that sort of showed through in my personality. (laughs) <laughs> Those things don't this make for great elected officials, it turns out. <laughs> well, I, you can't be completely honest as an elected official, that's for sure. <laughs> um, this, this is awesome. And you also have, that's something else I've stopped you many times, because what does the word incredulous mean? <laughs> because your vocabulary is so good. What, is the, what does the word incredulous mean for our oh, listeners? Yeah. And mostly me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, incredulity is like, I can't believe this is so. I can't believe this. I am disgusted to learn of this state. Yeah, 
so it'd be the way that uh, that Doug Ford reacted to to the, <laughs> to the aged people in the homes kind of thing, right? <laughs> well, yeah, although know. that was a little bit cynical as well because he introduced a bill just before the pandemic to reduce even further the inspections in the long-term care homes. So he's fully aware of the damage that he contributed. I was just thinking as we went down this little rabbit hole that this is this is what make you a perfect leader of the opposition always <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, have like, no like, shame. I have no shame when it comes to uh telling people they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> and no filter <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay so yeah okay so let's talk about your schooling so after you, you i guess you went to school in hamilton you then went where did you do your undergraduate i did my undergraduate at ryerson actually and um i just wanted to go back a little further because uh, high school, I went to a self-paced high school and I find that the self-paced program for teenage me really shaped my um, work ethic and self. So I thought that was like a good nod out. There's not a lot of uh, programs like that in Ontario, but Westmount Secondary School in Hamilton has that. And it was, uh, it really prepared me for higher education where people aren't holding your hand with deadlines and due dates. It's a little bit up to you. Oh, that's cool. It's good. It's kind of like it's when you said self. I I didn't even know these schools existed because I'm the product of a very bad public school system. <laughs> so is it like a Montessori school for high school kids? Yeah. It, well, the programs yeah changed. It was adopted in 1990, and essentially it's they call it self-paced, right? So you enroll in a course at the start of the term, and you go to a class, and there's an instructor. Uh, they don't really give lessons. You get like, oh, what do they call them? Learning guides. And they're between one and five units within the learning guide where you would work through it on your own and you, the teacher was a resource to you. And you were expected to be in class during class time, um, but there was no kind of sitting there listening to somebody and then doing work all together as a group. So you would just move through it at your own pace. And if the end of term came and you hadn't finished all of the units, then you would carry over, as they say, and you could finish the next term. Some students use this to their advantage by finishing courses more quickly and starting a new course before the end of the term and getting ahead. So you could collect credits at your own pace, essentially. Ah, I see. That's cool. Okay, so, so then with that experience, what, what, drew, what brought you to Ryerson? Well, I don't know if it was because of the self-paced learning, but I, as a teen, got into theater production and I was really attracted to the artistic, creative, element and also the community theater is like a real special group of people like really loving and charismatic and I just fell in love with those kind of projects and so Ryerson had us an excellent um, theater production program and it's the only place I wanted to go it's the only place I applied to and I was accepted and I came to Ryerson and um, did that program and it was pretty good. And so and so yeah because I was gonna ask the so what happened after you enjoyed the program Ryerson was home for those four years what happened next? Yeah, then I, I stayed in Toronto and I started working at the Canadian Stage Company as the wardrobe assistant. I specialized in costuming, so I was working as the assistant to the head of wardrobe at the Canadian Stage Company. And that was yeah, pretty good. Like, it was a great place to work and it was a great first job to have and I got to work in my field. But the pay wasn't great. The insecurity of working in the arts, it turned out, was not compatible with my sensibilities. I found it very stressful to not know where I was going to be working next year or in five years and to plan for my future and that was a bit of a problem for me when I was about 26, 27. So I left the Canadian Stage Company and I went back to school to George Brown College for one year business administration kind of 
designed for people who already had a degree from university and wanted to kind of hone a bit of their management kind of chops and bring it yeah. back to their industry. So I did that. Yeah. And so when, <laughs> after George Brown, you, when did you start at Ryerson? Uh, well, I had a couple, uh, one more job before I started at Ryerson. So then after George Brown, I worked at a company that it was a foundation for musicians. So it was funded by the government and it dispersed funds to musical acts and production, like producers and stuff. And I, it was really, it was a really bad experience. It was the worst job I ever had. And it was due to the leader, the head, the president of the company was a tyrant who I don't know. She was awful. She was awful to me and she was awful to everyone. And it was the worst experience I ever had. And I <laughs> dramatically was fired from that job one year after <laughs> I started. So I'd like to dig down on that, but that's probably something over beers. Because if you were incredulous, you probably would have said some things that would have I raised did. some yeah. brows. That was a bit of the problem, right? Is that I was like, right out of the gate, realized there was a bunch of bullshit and I wouldn't, I wasn't quiet about it. That really rubbed her the wrong way. And when she brought me in for the firing conversation, she fired me. And then when I started saying, this isn't my fault, I'm, I'll leave, you know, but you're causing this mess. You're creating a revolving door because people can't work with you. And she said, this is exactly why I'm firing you. You're insubordination. And I said, I don't work here anymore. How is it insubordination? And I later heard that this statement went around the office like wildfire. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Technically, if you've been just fired, you no longer work I no there, longer so, work here, yeah. so anything I can do is not insubordination. <laughs> that's, 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 that's a, that is a good story. Okay, so what uh, now after that horrible job, you came to Ryerson? Yeah, then I did. So I was on unemployment for a few months and uh, stressing about my life and my prospects and thought to myself, you know, what is really important to me? What do I need? You know, I'm 28 now. What kind of life do I want to build for myself? And I thought, you know, I would like a really kind of secure income, secure job, something that I can feel um, like I'm contributing and feel safe and feels comfortable like home. And I thought about all of the people I knew and what kind of jobs they had, all my friends mostly, people in my age bracket. What were they doing and where were they working? And I had a friend who was working at the Access Center at Ryerson. And I thought, you know what? She's got a good gig. She's been working there for several years. It's decent pay, great benefits. I'm familiar with the campus. Like, let's see what's up there. So she put in a good word for me and got me hired on a part-time basis at the Access Center as I was like a financial assistant, essentially. So I was assisting a woman who would coordinate all of the like sign language interpreters and note takers, all of those uh, contractors for students who needed that accommodation. And she was having a hard time keeping track of the POs, the purchase orders that she would set up in order to pay these people based on their invoice. So I went and went there with my rock star Excel skills and I set up a <laughs> they teach that self-referencing workbook. Yeah, basically <laughs> did like two weeks of work and then just rode that because it was like, I was tracking information that takes a long time to sort through if you don't know how to create a little mini database about it. So that was a good deal. And they loved me so much, they gave me full-time hours from there, I just started applying for like internal postings to do like maternity leave coverages, like people who would leave a position for a I second. Was to, I, I was trying to, I couldn't remember when you, I've known you for some time and mm -hmm. I'm, I can't remember what the role was that you had when we first met. I remember 
we advocating for you to say, hey, you should take this job. There's an opening coming, which is your current job now. Yeah, no, what, I, was what, in, well, I was in the first year common science office. So I was working, when I was hired, I was works. working with Noel, George, and uh, Derek Hyde was my boss. Shout out to Derek Hyde. He's good easy dude to work for yeah and then uh, andy larson came in i worked with him and then andy mcwilliams came in and i worked with him and then noel george came back and i went on maternity leave to have a baby which is what one does during maternity leave <laughs> yeah, I, I think so yeah <laughs> that's my understanding yeah then i came back and then this a few months i think less than a year after I came back, this job came up and yeah, I was approached by a few people and I was interested. I saw the posting and I got to say like, as much as I liked that first year office job, I did not enjoy the location of it. In terms of the, like being in that kind of environment with the upper echelon or because the students were always coming, first year uh, students were always coming. What was it that? No, no, no. The students weren't the problem. Yeah. I didn't enjoy the physical location, the geographical location of it uh, on campus. It's not I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. outside the building, the Vic building. It's a little, it can be bumpy. It was inside <laughs> the Vic building, that was the problem. I don't want to get into it. You'll uh, have to cut okay. it out if I'm too explicit. Yeah, no, no, we, we don't have to even go down that road anymore. I'm just glad that you're part of uh, the Molecular Science Program because it's great having uh, you do so many things for us. Thank you. Coming back to your undergrad, I mean, theater is very different than what most of our listeners will have experienced, and I think it's cool. We also, uh, Beverly Buzon, who's also someone who was big in theater, I don't know if you knew that, but if I you listen to her podcast, yeah, she, it's pretty crazy, seven years, and she still has royalty checks, apparently, from acting. Oh. Anyway, but we learned a little bit about theater then. Like, theater seems like it's mostly um, driven by passion. Is Do you need to be, are you a good student when you're in theater? Like, is it a thing? Is it, or is it, you mentioned the community and the interactions. Like, how did you, how were you as an undergrad student? As an undergrad student, I was pretty good. Success in theater, I'm not academically wonderful, because I'm a pretty lazy studier. But I'm a hard worker in the physical labor and I'm good at organizing and I really like putting, how do I say this, like everybody's working towards the same goal and we're all like moving this event forward and that brings out the best in me, I found. And so in those things I really excelled and I really enjoyed it and um, I was easily motivated and I did quite well. I was very happy doing those, those types of jobs. And I would always say in administrative interviews with people that I'm like, my theater background, I have this like, get it done at all costs attitude, whatever it takes, we can do this. You know, yeah, show the, show, the show must go on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So what, what's, okay, so in your current role, I guess, what do you like best about your job? What do I like best about my job? Oh yeah, the people. I am a people person. <laughs> that wasn't a very quick answer. Are you looking at your notes? <laughs> uh, I did, yeah, I had to scroll down because I was like, oh, I did write something, what was it? Oh yeah, <laughs> the thing I like most about the world, people. Yeah, so I definitely love the students and faculty, staff. I like to talk, I'm very, I'm quite, I don't know, can you be very extroverted? I'm an extroverted person, so I need human interaction to feel energized and so anybody has been trapped in my office for a lengthy conversation about politics or philosophy will attest. I like to talk, so I like people. 
by the way, I, I encourage you, if it's all right with Sarah, for everybody to visit her office because it's the nicest, most functionally wonderful space to visit in so many ways. For you, it looks functional because you've got a, that, that desk where you can stand. For people who, like, the lighting just feels warm, the colors, like, everything about it just makes you feel good when you go to see Sarah, yeah. except if you're sitting and she's standing. I did it on purpose because I was going to be spending eight hours a day in there. Yeah, and it's, it's a great space. Uh, it's not a big space, but one person at a time because there's no yeah, problem. Yeah, definitely. You, you, I mean, you won't, the, the, the sad part about this is that while our graduate listeners will all know who you are, our undergraduate listeners may not get the chance to, to interact with you. That's why we're asking so much about your job because you, you, these are jobs that exist that people don't even think about, right? These, these really important support roles within academia to help get people to, through the, the goalposts, like get them, get them to graduate and everything else. And so you're playing an instrumental role. What, what do you like least about your job, though? The poorly thought out and poorly communicated policy procedures, lack of integration of our database systems, like there's a lot of disjointed, you know, people in my administrators, we, you know, we call it the silo, Ryerson is siloed. And it's not just the Faculty of Arts and the Faculty of Science and the Faculty of Engineering that are siloed, but it's also like the Registrar's Office and Financial Services and HR are all siloed and even their computer systems don't integrate and don't talk to each other. So there's so much redundancy and so much room for error because of this. It's especially frustrating to me. And uh, yeah, I can't explain it. It's the worst. And uh, something that I also dislike that I recently was, I was reminded of is the Ryerson runaround. And I really try to shut that down as soon as it rears its head. Yeah. And, and let's explain that because I think everyone it was many, many people will not have experienced it, thankfully, but you will someday. And so what do you mean by what flyers and you can use uh, yeah, so anything you want. You're a student or you could be administrator, faculty, anybody. You are somebody with a question. You're like, oh, I need to do a thing. How do I do it? And so you think, like, who could I ask about this? I'll go to uh, whoever seems like the obvious choice. And you email somebody and they say, oh, I don't deal with that. You have to go talk to this person. And so then you are put in touch with that person or you reach out to that person and they say, oh, I'm not quite sure. I don't really do that. And you go this person. And then there's however many steps, sometimes just one or two, other times it's five or six, seven or eight, until you finally come back around to that first person that you emailed, the last person has told you they're the person to contact. So now you have no problem solved. You've talked to a numerous people and nobody seems to know who's in charge of helping you with that particular issue. Isn't that just what networking is? <laughs> just kidding. Actually, it, it, that, that's a horrible experience. And as a somebody, I find it crippling. I find the bureaucracy crippling. And I think when you just if you group all those things, it's those, the, it's the bureaucratic waste or inconsistencies or the way that it, it, it just sort of, yeah, you do, the other hand doesn't know what the other, what the other hand is doing. And it's just, it's so frustrating. I will easily answer this question with those INC forms where I can change a grade, anyone's grade, from an F to an A plus if I wanted to. But if you didn't write, if I filed an INC, I have to I still do a paper copy of the form mm -hmm. and it doesn't make any sense because they okay. usually then ask me for a digital number. Brian, there's another layer to that. You can I, only use the INC grade change form up to a certain date, a year, I think. If you are changing a grade after more than a year, you have to use the grade exception form. Which, and I usually get these two forms mixed up, by the way. Yeah, I exactly. usually They're almost identical. The only difference that I can ascertain is that the great exception form has the word exception in it at its title. And yeah. after receiving the Ryerson runaround one time, I 
through a mild fit on the phone and the person on the other end said, you know what, just print off the form, cross out the great, great, the incomplete grade form and write in great exception form and then scan it and send it back to me. And I thought that was even worse because I thought if this is the solution, you've just proved these two forms don't need to exist. We could have one form. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This must get, I mean, I think you're a fairly eloquent communicator, so you might be able to talk your way in and out of problems quite, quite, yeah, quite, quite easily. But this, if this frustration is in your court, you must feel that, that you, you could be at risk of offending people because of just your directness in, in these things. Do you ever, what do you do? Do you have like a big stack of thank you cards on your desk that you fire off to people like immediately after sort of reading them the riot act? How do, you, how do you manage this relationship? No, but that sounds like a good idea. I could probably... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could get some, some, sorry for being incredulous. And then <laughs> it's just got a big smiling picture of you. Have a nice yeah. day. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I've, like, I've grown up at Ryerson. I've been here since I was 28 and I'm you know, 40 now. So I've had many years to grow. And now I try to, when I'm in these quagmires with people, I try to have a happy tone and say to them, I know you're not doing this to me on purpose. I don't understand. Can you help me understand? And I try to be lighthearted about it and try to relate to them like, oh, isn't this frustrating? Or what is a similar thing you experience as to what I'm experiencing? Or is there, can you help me? Like, can you help me with a way to how to remember to do it this way and not that way? And I think I like that, that, yeah. That's, I, a, that's, that's a nice tact. Yeah, I've, I've tried to scale back. I also want to say like my advocacy in the union I think has has given me a bit of credit and so I can draw on the, that bank account as it were sometimes like people like me and so they'll give me a little slack okay I think I don't know so by serving that other role as being an advocate on behalf of your colleagues these same colleagues that you might have confrontational conversations with, you've earned a little bit of street cred in terms of leeway and, and flexibility. I think so. I think so. Because if I were being brutally honest with myself, I would say it should be harder. I should have pissed off more people more often that I would be experiencing a lot more resistance. And I don't. And so that's one possible reason. Well, I think also because maybe you're extroverted and people get to know you, they, they know that while this might feel abrasive in the way that it's, it's coming across. They know that you're not mean spirited. Like you're not doing it because you, you're doing it because your brain is like misfiring in some sort of weird way because you're like, uh, I don't understand. You know, your eyes are twitching and stuff. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> so the, they, they know it's not, it's, it's something's, something's wrong with the system, not you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, like I tell people I burn hot and quick, right? Like I got real upset, but it's gone pretty quick. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's good that people know who you are because I think that helps. What, what inspires you most about your job? How do you, if, if these kind of frustrations exist and you got the people, uh, which bring you the, the thing you like the best, what, what inspires you about this, this job? Yeah, it's weird. I think I might've said different things throughout my career, but right now I'm really feeling the students are inspiring me. The, their curiosity and their tenacity you know, they're, they're doing it. They're getting the Ryerson run around. They're going through these struggles and they're still able to produce research and get forms to me reasonably-ish on time and have a chat with me and, and I get to learn, you know, what they're learning. And I, I'm also inspired by, you know, supporting scientific in inquiry. I was never a very scientifically minded person, but I love scientific progress. So I'm, I'm very happy and inspired to be supporting 
that effort. I think it would be a lot harder for me to work in some other departments in the university because if I didn't believe in the research that was being done, I might be bogged down more by those frustrations that I explained earlier. Yeah, that's really good. And, I, and that's, that's a nice perspective too, because you, like you said, you didn't have a science background and now you're getting exposed to it and you appreciate even your appreciation is growing, which is, which is awesome. So you're saying that people actually read those forms? <laughs> Are you reading them? Is that where you're getting all this insight from? It's kind of like, anyway. Uh, I do. No, you know what? I started recently before, before pandemic in the before times attending the student seminars because that it would help me in my job to have a better idea of what the students are working on and who they are. You know, I know I can recite somebody's first and last name because I see it on the spreadsheet all the time, but if I could pass them in the hall and not even notice it was them. If I wanted to kind of know who everybody was and get a sense of what their research is. And a lot of the time I don't understand at all. And I'm just in the room and I'm watching them and I'm thinking about if they've made a grammatical error. Uh, or if they're an especially good presenter. But occasionally somebody will be doing research that I find interesting or they'll have like a funny anecdote that does that I do relate to and it's worth it's worth it. Very cool. So what when you see these people give presentations or whatever and, and you're not necessarily looking at the technical content, what transferable skills do you think are most important for students to have when they graduate? The real ones like or no the more hard skills right are uh, communication skills, spoken, written, multimedia. Knowing how to get across your message to an audience that isn't working in the lab with you. As a lay person, I want that. So yeah, that's huge. And then I would also say like typing. If you can learn to type, you'll spend a lot less time doing things. That so was what you mean, so, okay. So yeah, I see what you're saying. So that, that would be it. Typing, yeah. Yeah, a technical. That. I took that in high school and it was like a throwaway. I just had to get a quick, easy elective and I took it and it's been like one of the best skills I've ever learned. And then- I never thought that, about that, as a, but it is transferable for sure. It, it's usually, it's, yeah, that's a good example. Okay. Well, what I think about, like, I've had students, like even master's students, but like PhD students submit like gigantic theses to me, like, or dissertations, they're huge. And I'm like, yeah. you had to write this whole thing, man. If you're like chicken pecking it out, it's going to take way longer. <laughs> chicken pecking it. You know what I mean? Like the finger. If you're, if you're using your thumbs, <laughs> like, like you're typing a text message. <laughs> hey, no, when you're typing properly on a keyboard, you do use your thumbs for the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's good. And then the soft skills, which I think we could all work on. And so I just want to give them a bit of space right now is um, empathy. We should all be developing our empathy. Ability to have difficult conversations. Be willing to be in an uncomfortable place emotionally because that's going to happen a lot as an adult. I also think holding two opposing views in your mind at one time. The ability to see two sides at the same time seems simple, but it's not. It's very hard and it will help you have those difficult conversations and it will help you with your empathy. So that's like a huge soft skill. Another kind of hard skill that I wish somebody had told me about was uh, personal household financing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, just for the after times, I would say like growing food. Everybody should know how to grow some food on your balcony, in your backyard, wherever you can learn how to cultivate tomatoes, potatoes, something. You might need huh. to do that later. Yeah, yeah. and that's, a, that's actually something everybody can do, especially now. And uh, yeah, that's a great idea. 
And it's also you, you're, you're giving life to something. Like it's a project that and bears fruit. Yeah. And it's, it's delicious. Like when I'm eating the tomatoes I grew in my garden, they, nothing tastes better because A, they're fresh and B, I did it. It's my effort that I'm eating. Yeah. Tastes great. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And if you look, if everyone's looking for something easy, basil is a great thing to start with because it's good in everything. Yeah. Those are, that, that's good. I, I, so empathy's come out a lot lately. And I think in our community, we're not very empathetic. And I think that's a his, traditional historic problem in academia where we are in our own space, our own bubble. Why don't people understand? Why don't, you know, and you don't try to understand. You just question why people don't understand you. <laughs> and so I, I find that we could be more empathetic. Um, especially in times like now when people are dealing with problems that we can't see. So that's a great one. And difficult conversations are always important. Awesome. Let's go to the rapid fire stuff. And All these right. are the questions I like to, to go a little deeper. And, and they, I always feel like they're like psychological test questions. But um, mm -hmm. to be fair, to be fair, any, there's no wrong answer here. So question number one, Sarah, what factoid do my colleagues know least about me? I'm an open book and a talker, as I said before. I think everybody knows everything, maybe too much about me. But specifically, they probably don't know that I weigh 68 kilos. <laughs> Excellent answer. I, I did not. I, that's, that, that's, that's, and the fact that you use kilograms also shows that you're a metric and, and trying to be progressive and get away from this empirical system. So, okay, next question. What famous person, current or otherwise, would you most like to go to dinner with and why? I did think about this and I have a long list. Okay, give so, me your top three. Well, I would say just currently I'm really reading a fair bit and identifying with Simone de Beauvoir and her existential feminism. I think I could have a real satisfying conversation with her over some food. I feel that. And she's dead, obviously, so I would, my next answer would be somebody living. It might be Kate Mann or Roxane Gay. These are also modern feminist philosophers. My fun answer, and I think I would have the best time and feel the best about myself afterwards, is to have dinner with Lizzo because she's amazing. So I just, you put all women down and as your dinner and feminism came up. What was the, well, what draws you to those particular lines of inquiry or discussion over dinner? Yeah, I don't know. I just, I find, well, I mean, if we want to go all the way back, right? I made a conscious decision in 2016 after the U.S. election that I was going to make a point of absorbing material, right? Creative material from women as much as I could. I was, you know, the, a great example is the Mark Maron podcast, WTF. I listened to that for years and I find him to be a very wonderful interviewer. And I just, after that, I just couldn't get excited about hearing what his perspective was anymore. And I just really wanted to just hear from women and not at the expense of men, but just like we live in a patriarchy. I've heard a lot about what men think. And so I'm ready to just think about what women think. No offense. Cool. We still love you. No, no, I'm no, yeah, no, and I, I think that's great. And you, you're just trying to find the, the new equilibrium. It's not that you're alienating one group. And you're right. I think we are do live in a patriarchal society, and we hear mostly what men have to say. Okay. So what is your favorite food? Oh, that shifts. I'm really into this Syrian takeout joint in Hamilton called Toma. They make their own cheese. It's so good. Really highly recommend their falafel or shawarma. Yeah, great. Okay, some Syrian takeout. Nice. Okay. Um, and what is your favorite beverage? Uh, I drink three beverages. I mm, almost said those all together. I drink water, coffee, and beer. Those are the things that I love. And is there obviously coffee in the morning or coffee anytime? Coffee in the morning, yeah. I will sometimes delude myself into thinking I can have a 3 p.m. coffee, but then I'm up at 
2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what is your favorite color? Chartreuse. What color is chartreuse for people like me who are not necessarily colorblind, but color stupid? It's the in-between yellow and green. Like pukey green? No, not brown. Like lime green, except like yellower. Okay. So kind of like the, the, the color of leaves at a certain time of day, like yeah. when the sun's coming through them? Oh, yeah, leaves when they just come from the bud, right? Like in uh, May. I'm that, with you. Like, yellow green. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Okay. Complete the sentence. If I was not a graduate administrative assistant at Ryerson, I would like to be independently wealthy. <laughs> and what would you do with that independent wealth? Relax? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but you, you're an extrovert. So how are you going to relax and be extroverted? Oh, I guess join all of the book clubs. Okay. Oh, that's good. All right, okay. Or have, we, have you always been an avid reader? Or is this something that since 2016 that you really focused on? No, I've always been a reader um, ever since I was a kid. And a, a lot of fiction, obviously, when I was a kid, and I still really absorb a lot of fiction. But since high school and university, I started getting into nonfiction, and I really enjoy, you know, all the books. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in print. Okay. So, <laughs> thing in the top 10 of your bucket list. Oh, bucket lists are stupid. They are stupid. I never had one either, but what, okay, let's call it something different. Something you'd really like to do that you haven't done yet. I would like to go to France for the sole purpose for many days in a row to go to the Louvre and not go for one day and not line up for a million years to see the Mona Lisa, but go all day, every day for many days in a row to see everything. And why that particular space? Why the Louvre? Like there's lots of great museums and galleries. Because, yeah, because I've, I've been to them. I've been to Paris a couple of times and I've gone to museums and I've seen some amazing things. The water lilies are, I cried, I wept, crazy. Um, but I never go, I don't want to. It's too intimidating. It's huge and I'm afraid, I'm afraid to go and miss something. So I'd rather go and miss everything. You know what I mean? So I'd yeah. like in my life to be able to devote the time to go in there and look at every single piece that's on display. That's a very good and honest answer. Love it. Okay. Who is or was your favorite role model? My mom. Oh, and why your mom? What was it? I mean, we could all guess and imagine, but tell us. She was uh, strong and smart and capable. And, and, all, and those are three things that I would say define you as well. So that makes perfect sense that your mother was the one who was your role model. <laughs> What what is uh what has been your greatest achievement so far? Oh, my son. Yes, and he's real cute. Having a kid, not just having a kid, right? Like you can like lots of people have kids, right? But it's not even my achievement. Like how, like I've just stripped him of all his agency. He's my, <laughs> I don't refer to him as my son, you know. Like he's all this, you know. But yeah, like every day, like the the opportunity to be with him and watch him grow and learn and have an influence over him at least over how he interacts with the world, like what he observes and how he sees it. And I'm trying to get him to be thoughtful about what he sees and, and how he feels and why. I think that's the most rewarding part of my day, for sure. Yeah, 
and I and I would call it achievement because as your your mother was to you and has influenced you and, and made you who you are, you are to all this. And so I think I think yeah, I don't think you should. I know it sounds like we're stripping him of his free will, but we're not. <laughs> you are contributing to his success, which means you can share that. Yeah, he is only six. He doesn't get his free will till he's eighteen, sixteen, maybe. <laughs> I have a feeling it'll be it'll literally be sixteen, not not before. <laughs> strong wills will be will be tested in this. I think. What do you? What would you say has been your greatest greatest failure so far? I don't know. I lose track of things. Like my whole job is paperwork and keeping track of paperwork. And I still lose track of it sometimes. And that feels like a huge failure. Cause I think to myself, you have one job to do and you fail at it. <laughs> Sarah, how can you make this mistake so many times? <laughs> <laughs> but it's never the same mistake. It's always a slightly different mistake. Are you, are you somebody who's too hard on yourself? Yes. I famously <laughs> said to my therapist one time that I didn't identify as a perfectionist because I had never done anything perfectly enough. No <laughs> <laughs> so irony. It came out of my mouth and later I reflected on it and I was like, boy, you are a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for being so honest. Okay. What are, what are you most grateful for? My health. Being yeah. born to middle-class people. Yeah. I think it was Anthony Morgan who said he, he, he won the lottery by being born to the family that he was, right? It's not something that you get to choose when you're coming out of the womb, what your situation is. And, and we are fortunate to be in this part of the world. What concerns you the most? And I like what keeps you up at night, not coffees at 2 p.m., but what, what kind of concerns you about the world and, and where we're going? I'm very worried about the, the social and economic fallout of um, this pandemic. I'm very afraid of like crippling austerity regime around the world. I'm worried about the types of people that stormed the state houses in America demanding to open up during a pandemic. I'm afraid of those people marching down my street and demanding things of me. Yeah, no, it's, and it's going to be an unsettled time for some time to come. And we got to, I think we have to rethink all of our institutional structures right now. And this is a great time to be creative, but it's also a time that you, you can't, you can't act the same way that we would normally act because there's all sorts of challenges doing that. What spot in the world do you most like traveling to? Oh, old stuff, old buildings, museums, churches, old cities, ruins. Can you think of, can you think of a, a ruin or something you visited that you'd share with us? Yeah. So in Wales in 1997 with my parents, I went to this place called Tintern Abbey, which was an old ruined abbey as the name would suggest. And the most stunning thing I'd ever seen, I was 17, I hadn't seen the world, and I go to this old thing, it was older than anything I'd ever seen in my life coming from Canada, you know, like all this stuff is like at most 200 years old, and this was like this ancient ruined abbey, and it was just beautifully destroyed, like just by time, and there was nature growing, and there's the old windows and doorways that you could stand and see a certain part of the landscape, you know, like when it was built, it was built in a way to take advantage of its landscape. And now that it was ruined, you were still experiencing that, those views that people who would have, like the monks that would have lived there um, would have seen as well, except they would have had a roof over their head and maybe glass through the window, I don't know. It was glorious. And as I say that, the second thing that really um, struck me when I traveled, when I was about 24, I went to um, the States for my friend's wedding and we were in the Nevada desert. And they picked me up and I flew into Klamath Falls in Washington. And then we drove overnight through the desert to Salt Lake City or something. They're Mormons. Yeah, somewhere in there. 
And uh, I woke up in the middle of the night in the car they were driving me and we had to stop because we'd hit too many jackrabbits or something. We had to scrape them off the end of the car. And the seeing the horizon, like from horizon to horizon, the entire sky was like covered in stars in a way I'd never seen before. And I always vowed that I'd come back to the desert because I wanted to see that again. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular to see nature, especially actually that's going to be the title of your um, your travels it's going to be beautifully destroyed. <laughs> I think that's poetic. The life and times of the modern world. <laughs> it could be like a complete... In the jackrabbits off the bottom of the car. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not going to use that as a title. Well, that could be the, the tagline below or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what is your most productive time of day? Morning. Absolutely. Morning. And that's with your cup of coffee or two cups or three cups, however many it takes. Uh, what is your favorite hobby? A reading beyond reading just reading reading is the hobby the hobby well, yeah reading is the activity like productive i always feel really good when i repair clothing or make clothing um coming that feels back like, to your costume your costume yeah, days and, yeah having those skills and being able to make fast fashion last a lot longer than it was ever designed to that feels really good and what piece of advice would you give your second year self stop stop smoking so much weed you don't have time for that <laughs> <laughs> that's always good advice and now that we've legalized it maybe that's an issue for lots of people uh okay so let's talk about covid if you're an extrovert what has been your biggest challenge so far in this quarantine pandemic situation yeah it's definitely being isolated from my friends and now that we try to get together in a, a social safe social distancing way i can't stay away from them i keep coming up too close even, I'm thinking about it and I still wind up too close. I can't stay away. What do you think That's that is? What, uh, yeah, what is it? And why do you think it is? Why are you drawn to get so close in the space? It's my love language is touch, right? I like to touch and hug and be close to people and especially my loved ones. And I'm still close and touching my family and, you know, a couple of family bubble people, but it's not enough. So when I see my friends who I would formerly be very close with and we are not in our, in the household bubbles and I have to stay away from them. It's just, I can't, unless I'm consciously thinking about it really hard, don't stand near them. I can't help it. I just gravitate towards them because I want to be close to them. You should maybe like just carry a hula hoop around with you and stand in it and then yeah. uh, you'll realize that you'll see the distance is closing. Yeah. <laughs> I think I have to default to a mask, right? You know, they say like, wear a mask if you can't safely social distance and just assume that I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Give in to the dark side. <laughs> okay. So what is it? What, uh, what kind of strategies are you using to cope then? Obviously you're now, you're now meeting people and seeing people and as best you can within that physical distancing, but how else are you coping? Well, you know, I live with my dad and my son and Aldous spends part-time at his dad's house as well. So Phil is uh, here frequently. And so I get, I get a lot of like family closeness and that sustains me. And then I try to interact with my friends as often as I can, which is the icing on the cake. And yeah, I, I gotta say like Aldous is, is carrying a lot of weight for me that way. We spend a lot of time together. We're always like hugging because he's also a hugger. And so that's kind of getting us through the day, I think. Awesome. And uh, is that what has been your silver lining in all of this pandemic? Yeah, it's absolutely spending time with him. Like, I always liked spending time with him, but now we have so much more time together and I get to interact with him around his learning. He's, you know, he's only in grade one, but there's online learning that he's doing with his class and with his teacher. And I love doing it with him. I love seeing how he works. It's, I don't love seeing how easily he gets frustrated and he berates himself for not being perfect 
all the time and I'm like Gee, where, do you <laughs> where does he yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah and then having to go like I've learned with him he needs a, a routine of running right he's like a big athletic kid and he needs to run around and he likes to play and so forcing myself out of the house every day twice a day to like go down to the park or this we call it the pit it's this grassy area just at the top of the bayfront park in hamilton here and it's just a big open grass area that's a little bit depressed in the middle so there's like hills up each side so you can run up the hill and get like a good workout and roll down the hill if you're a little kid and it's really great so we go out there a couple times a day and it feels good it feels good to play with him and be outside yeah for sure, especially now that the weather has improved so much. Sarah, we could do this all day, but we can't because you you have to go outside with all this and run up a hill. And mm -hmm. uh, I should probably go outside too and get some steps. But thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day and, and telling us a little bit about your story and journey. And I know it's going to inspire others. Uh, so thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, Sarah. And we'll catch up with you again soon, hopefully over some beverages once this is, pandemic is all over. Yeah, well, I would love that. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye.